This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter 8. And as you make your way to the 8th chapter of Esther, I should just take a moment here to point out that the book of Esther presents us with a perfect picture of the way that the Lord our God gives the victory to those who trust in him. And listen, this eternal truth, uh, it's just as true today as it was during the days of Esther. God wants to give the victory to those who trust in him. In order to make my case, uh, we're going to spend our time this evening continuing to consider the way that the Lord used the courageous faith of Esther to secure the salvation of the Jews who had been targeted for extermination. And with this as the focus, I should take a moment to remind you about the evil Amalekite man named Haman. Haman had convinced the king of Persia that the Jews were attempting to undermine his kingly authority. And it's for this reason that Haman asked permission to purge the people of God from the land of Persia. And it was at that point in time when Haman was permitted to issue a kingly decree which would ultimately allow him to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. Now, what Haman was failing to realize is that the true and living God had already promised to protect his people, and that's great news. You see, God is the Almighty One who promised to punish the enemies of Israel. and He is the King of Kings who already assured them that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, and that every tongue which rises against them in judgment shall be condemned. I believe this is a warning that we should all take into consideration. Well, uh, it was in our study last week when we learned about the, uh, the way in which the Lord fulfilled these promises during the days of Esther. And while Haman thought that Queen Esther wanted to honor him after she invited him to two different banquets, uh, she was actually arranging for his execution by exposing his plot against her people. And at the end of the day, Haman ended up being hanged from the gallows that he created for Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai. From this, we can see how those who trust in the Lord will always be victorious over the enemy. We will ultimately be victorious over the enemy by faith in the Lord. And at the same time, listen, the story of Esther's life also helps us to see that there will be times when our faith is put to the test. And there will be times when those who trust in the Lord will be called to stand against the enemy with the courageous faith that Esther demonstrated and exemplified on the day when she took a stand against Haman. And and not only that, but it's also crucial for every Christian to remember that we've been called to fight the good fight of faith. And what this means is this, that today's victory will quickly give way to tomorrow's battle. Today's victory will quickly give way to tomorrow's battle. And with that being the case, we need to become steadfast believers who are always ready to take a stand against the attacks of the enemy. Now, with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Esther and Mordecai, they prepared for the next attack. And if you would look with me here, Esther chapter 8, we're going to begin reading at verse 1. Here we read, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find the king, he's honoring his queen, Esther, by giving her the home of her enemy, Haman. How you like that for some comeuppance? You know, she, she, got, she, she acquired here the house of Haman. And, and as we consider this newly acquired property, you might be interested to know that the women who lived in the patriarchal system of ancient Persia, they not only enjoyed the right of property ownership, but they also had the right to own their own businesses. They had the right to manage a staff. They could oversee male employees. And, and, and so, you know, there was, a, there was a progressive nature to their patriarchal system. And at the same time, we also find Esther then turning around after receiving this new home, she appoints Mordecai over the house of Haman. And listen, if you think that she was required to give up this property because, you know, the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and man, you know, if, if that's what you're thinking, then calm down. Let's calm down and consider the historic context here. Now, uh, it's true that ancient Persia, uh, the empire there was built upon a patriarchal system, which was led by a king who was always a man. Uh, and, and yet women were still seen as legal entities who not only owned property and businesses, but they also had the right to travel. And, and in the case of a divorce, well, they had the right to keep the property that they purchased or had inherited prior uh, to their wedding. And, and so women had, uh, you know, just almost equal rights to, to men. And, and, you know, there, there are some things that we could drill down into further, but, but it was a pretty progressive society. Now, the reason I point this out is due to the fact that we also live in a progressive society. And, and some see this as a, as a wonderful thing. Some see this as a, as a debatable thing. And, and I, I can see it both ways. If we look back to you know, the early arguments of feminism, I, I would be, yeah, I'm a full-on feminist. You know, I fully believe that women should have equal rights to men. Uh, but, but has progressive bypassed that and become something else? Has, has feminism give, given way to a third wave? which is actually kind of undermining the whole movement in, in, in general? Well, with that, I want to insist here that modern-day feminism has actually created a narrative that presents every patriarchal system as automatically oppressive at the core by the very nature of the fact that men are in charge. And so just based on that, and based on this belief that men are toxic oppressors, and, and therefore every society that's based on a patriarchal system is evil. Is that true? Is that a reality? Now listen, I'm not here to defend any patriarchal system that seeks to oppress women, and yet at the same time, we must not fail to notice how the fight against toxic masculinity has actually set the stage for men to dominate in the world of women. That's exactly what it's done. As a matter of fact, the third wave of feminism has actually helped to create a culture in which biological men who are struggling with a mental disorder and think that they're women are now dominating in women's sports. As a matter of fact, there are biological men who now have won titles in many athletic competitions, which include weightlifting. Yeah, the, the, there's biological men who think that they're women dominating in weightlifting over women. How about that? They're dominating in wrestling. Yeah, that's right. They're dominating in MMA, in swimming, in running, in cycling, uh, even BMX, skateboarding, dominating in, in what considered to be a, a, a sport called golf. Uh, you know, <laughs> e e even in Frisbee golf, you know. I, I signed up for a Frisbee golf tournament, tur tournament uh, one year, 
And, and they said I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, compete because my, my urine test came back clean. But uh, I said, sorry, too sober for this sport. Listen, it won't be long before biological men hold all of the titles in all women's sports. And the reason why is because men are the best women. That's what, the progressives, that's what the progressive people are saying. They're winning the trophies. They're winning the awards. They're winning the Emmys and the Grammys. And the yeah, men are dominating in the world of women. Is that progressivism? Many see this as a progressive victory over the patriarchy. And so let me see if I understand this correctly. Uh, allowing a biological male with a mental disorder to defeat a biological woman in, in, in an MMA competition, this is somehow a victory against the patriarchy? In, in my estimation, any society that allows a biological man to fight and dominate a woman in this way has embraced the very worst form of toxic masculinity. To imagine a, 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 a dude getting in a ring and beating up a gal, that's the worst form of toxic, toxic masculinity. And yet it's celebrated by the progressive left. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Ladies, please trust me when I tell you that the progressive beliefs of modern feminism is based on toxic masculinity. And listen, the seven Supreme Court justices, the, the men who ruled in favor of abortion back in 1973, they weren't defending a woman's right to choose. No, instead they were men who were voting in favor of a man's right to have illicit relationships, all the while avoiding the consequences of an unplanned pregnancy with a woman that they have no intention of marrying. That's all it is. And women are like, it's our rights. It's our rights to kill our babies. No, it's not. It's men duping you into thinking that this is your right when it's not your right at all. I encourage you to remember that the millennial kingdom of Christ is going to be a patriarchy. Yeah. The millennial kingdom of Christ is a patriarchy. When we bow down before the throne of our Savior, Jesus, we will not be worshiping the Queen of Heaven. We will worship the King of Kings who is always just and always equitable. That being the case, those who insist that uh, patriarchal government is always bad because it's based on toxic masculinity, they're, they're failing to realize that the issue isn't gender. The issue is our sinful nature. It's our sinful nature that makes corrupt governments. And, and if you think that, well, if we just put women in charge, everything will just be better automatically, well, you haven't read too many history books. As a matter of fact, the world has seen its fair share of wicked women who oppressed the people that they ruled over. There was Jezebel, of course, the Phoenician princess who took control of Israel after marrying a simp named Ahab. And listen, this evil queen wasn't interested in establishing justice and equity for her people, no. She was an evil ruler. She had people murdered that she didn't like. There was Lady Elizabeth Bathory, the Countess of Hungary, who used her position of power to become a serial killer who actually tortured her victims. Yeah, she tortured the ladies who were better looking than her. How about Mary I of England, uh, who, who is better known as Bloody Mary? Yeah, it's not just a game kids play in, in, a, in a dark bathroom. 
It's not just a morning drink for alcoholics. It's, it's a lady who, who, was a, who was a murdering queen. She, she, she was the first woman to become the queen of England, and, and, and she could have left a legacy, a legacy of justice and equity, but, but she didn't. She actually became one of the cruelest women in history after having almost you know, uh, 300 people executed uh, for the crime of being a Protestant. Most of those people were burned at the stake at her command. There was Isabella, queen of Castilla. Uh, there was Empress Wu Zetin. Uh, there, there was Queen Ranavalona of Madagascar. Uh, there was Queen Isabella of France. Uh, and, and the list can go on and on of, of women who abused their power in horrific ways. Now, I'm not here to say that women are worse than men or men are worse than women. I think that we're all a bunch of sinners who desperately need Jesus Christ. The problem with power isn't gender. Because we've seen both genders abusing you know, uh, political power. The problem is our, our fallen nature, which affects all of us. And with that being the case, I encourage us, we need to become those believers who are hastening the day when the Lord Jesus will return and establish a perfect patriarchy here on the planet. But until that day comes, I'll remind you that the Lord Jesus has encouraged us to pray in this way. Our father, not our mother. Sorry, moms. Jesus encourages us to pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that for a moment. The Lord Jesus, in providing us with this model prayer, he's directing us to pray for the kingdom of our heavenly father to be established here on earth. Jesus encouraged us to pray for a patriarchal government here on the planet. We've been called to pray for the perfect patriarchy in which our risen Lord is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. And if this reality is too uh, disturbing to consider because you've been brainwashed with the whole toxic masculinity you know, nonsense, I encourage you to realize that the humanity of our risen king is masculine, like it or not. The human nature of our savior is male, and he will rule as king of kings when he establishes his kingdom here on the planet. And with that, we ought to be praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now with this as the hope, I want to continue to consider how King Ahasuerus enabled Esther and Mordecai to then defeat their enemies. And if you would, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 8, beginning at verse 3. Here we learn that Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadiatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the king that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Now, here in these verses, we find Queen Esther. She's asking the king to revoke the decree 
concerning her people. uh, And what she was failing to realize uh, was that the decree that Haman had created was irrevocable. It was irrevocable. And the reason why is due to the fact that it was a decree which was sealed with the signet ring of the king. I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 3. There we learned about the day when the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language, in the name of King Azurus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. As we consider the way that this decree was written in the name of the king, and then sealed with his signet ring, Well, it's important for us to realize that there was no way to revoke this order. Once this decree was given and sealed with the the signet ring, there's no way to revoke it. It's irrevocable. In order to prove my point, let's consider the way that the king explains this here to Esther and Mordecai as he starts mansplaining all of this. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 7, here we learn that King Azurus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews. You yourself write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the, name, in, in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. No one can revoke it. Once the king signs a decree or once his ring is used in passing an order, it's irrevocable. And so, so the king is helping Esther and Mordecai to understand that every order decreed by a Persian king can't be undone. It's just not as easy as that. And what this means then is that the anti-Semites who were living in the land of Persia, they retained the right to murder the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month. And the reason why is because this was the decree of the king. Couldn't be undone. And in similar fashion, listen, the king of kings has also decreed everlasting judgment on anyone who's broken his law. And that's irrevocable. It's irrevocable. This is precisely the point that James was making in the second chapter of his epistle. It's there where he declares, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Simply put, listen, if you've broken one of the Ten Commandments, then you're a lawbreaker. No matter which one it is, you're a lawbreaker, you're, you're guilty of transgressing the law, which makes you guilty before God. And listen, the law condemns those who have broken the laws of the Lord, and, and it's, it's an eternal condemnation. It's also important to realize that the law of the Lord is irrevocable. It's not like God can just be like, well, you know, I know I passed that law way back when, but, you know, now it's modern times and we can just never mind it all. Can't do it. Can't just, just on a whim, just say, never mind. God must, must punish every single sin. Thankfully for us, God the Father created a legal loophole so that sinners like us could be saved from the condemnation that we deserve. 
he did this by sending his only begotten son who came and received the punishment that we deserve so that we could receive the forgiveness that we don't deserve. In this way, God then remains just, punishing every sin, but also becomes the justifier of those who trust in him because he punishes our sins on Christ. I like the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3. It's there where he declares, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, those who trust in the Lord Jesus... We are set free from the condemnation of the law. And while it's true that the law of God is irrevocable, it's also true that the law of God is no longer able to condemn those who have already been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And in this way, the Lord Jesus gives us the victory over the curse. This is precisely the point that Paul was making in Galatians chapter 3. It's there where he declares, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might, become, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christian, listen, the the Lord Jesus has set us free from the curse that condemns us. And in this way, the believer is not only resting in the victory of our Savior, but we've also become more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Now, to further make my case here, let's continue to consider the way that the king uh, then provided the Jews with a legal loophole so that they could defend themselves. And if you would look with me here at Esther chapter 8, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 9, because here we learn that the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds." By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on, uh, on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. 
Now here in these verses, we learn about the legal loophole that King Ahasuerus created in order to uh, allow Mordecai and Esther and all the rest of the Israelites to defend themselves on that day of the purge. And as we consider the way that the Jews were permitted now to defend their personhood, their, their property, and their possessions, uh, we can rejoice in knowing that the founding fathers of our nation were also wise enough to create a constitution which identifies these God-given rights, which uh, enable us to protect our personhood as well as our property and our possessions. And, and so we should. We, we most certainly should. And listen, I realize that, you know, the Christian who's been insulted should turn the other cheek. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus was talking about. When somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek and let them insult you again. It's no big deal. You know, the whole sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Listen, if somebody insults you, you know, keep walking. It doesn't matter. We've been called to, to love our enemies. We've been called to pray for those who persecute us. And I believe in all of these things. At the same time, you want to kick in my door and, and hurt my wife? Well, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I love you, but it's not going to work out well for you. We don't have to look far to find a biblical case for our God-given rights, which enable us to protect our personhood, our property, and all of our possessions. And as we consider the current state of our nation, as we consider the uh, increasing rate of violent crimes happening in most major cities, and as we consider you know, what's happening in this country, I encourage every Christian, uh, you ought to prayerfully exercise your right to protect your family against those who uh, set out to assault us. And, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what that should look like in your home, but as for me and, and my family, you know, I'm investing in brass. So with that, <laughs> we have the right and the obligation to protect our homes and our families. And so we should. And with whatever force would come at us, we ought to have the same level of force in defending our homes. And I think that's a, that's a biblical concept that we find all throughout the scriptures, and we find it right here in the book of Esther. Now, in a spiritual sense, I also encourage you to remember that those who trust in Jesus Christ have already received his victory, and we've been given his authority over the evil spirits who are spiritually attacking us. And, and, and not only that, but listen, those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise also have access to the power by which we can cast demons out uh, of those who are possessed. And that's great news because, listen, demon possession is becoming more and more common here in this country. It used to be that the church was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and the demons had to hide themselves. Now the church is so weak, so you know, biblically illiterate, and, and, and has no clue about the power of the Holy Spirit that you know, demonic possession is becoming more and more evident and it won't be long before we're seeing that becoming more and more of an issue. And we need to know that we have the authority of Jesus Christ over the demons who, who would possess unbelievers. The Lord Jesus has already given us his victory over every enemy, which includes the devil and his demons. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. There he asks, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, listen, we're already more than conquerors by faith in Christ Jesus. Therefore, those who trust in Jesus, well, we can rejoice in knowing that the victory of Jesus can never be taken from us. No one and nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Praise the Lord. At the same time, Christian, listen, we're still called to fight the good fight of faith. Don't get it twisted. We are called to fight the good fight of faith. And I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's there where he declares, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul's saying, hey, you're engaged in warfare right now. So be careful with how you embrace the things of this world. And while it's true that Christians are already more than conquerors by faith in Jesus Christ, it's also true that we're still in the middle of this spiritual battle, and this is true every single day. And while we can rejoice in knowing that we'll eventually enter the kingdom of God completely victorious in Christ, we'd also do well to remember that the enemy is still trying to destroy our lives today. It's for this reason that Paul encouraged us to stay sober and to be vigilant because the adversary, the devil, is walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's right, the enemy is always preparing their attacks against the people of faith. And therefore, we must be sober-minded, and we must be vigilant as we stay on guard. What this means is that we must not allow our daily victories to distract us from the greater battle. In order to explain what I mean, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 8. I'd like to direct your attention to verse 13. Here we learn that a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel, So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city where the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we learn about this day when the couriers of the king went out and and they spread the good news that the Jews had the right to defend themselves throughout the entire empire of Persia. And, And as this good news spread, well, the enemy's plan to destroy the people of God, it ended up being turned into a holiday, which is celebrated by the Jews even today. 
Now, we're going to learn more about that in our study next week. We'll consider Purim and, and, and the celebration that, that is an annual event now. Uh, we're also going to learn about the way in which the Jews living in the Persian Empire at this point in time were forced to fight their enemies on the 13th day of the 12th month, which, which is Adar. That's right, the, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the enemies of Israel still decided to take advantage of Haman's plan and they did this by attacking the Jews on the day that had been decreed by the king. And as we continue to make our way through this incredible book, we'll see how the people of God, they defeated their enemies according to the decree of the king that was written by Mordecai. But just for the sake of our study tonight, and because I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, I just want to point this out, that the victory that occurred on the day when Haman was hanged from his own gallows, that wasn't the end of the fight. Had they hanged Haman and thought, job well done, let's, let's get back to our lives, well, then they would have been taken off guard several months later on the, 12th of, or the 13th day of Adar. And listen, the victory that they enjoyed on the day when the king officially acknowledged the rights of every Israelite to protect themselves, it, it, this didn't automatically mean that the enemy was just going to put down their weapons and, and say, okay, well, if you have the right to defend yourself, I guess we won't attack you. No, they were still coming. You know, within nine months, they were coming from, from, the, from the point in time when the decree was given. So, you know, if, if, the, if Mordecai writes this up and, and, and the king signs it with his signet ring and, and the Israelites say, okay, now, now we have the right to defend ourselves and so we can just go on back to what, what we're, we're, we want to do, well, then they would have been attacked and they would have been taken out on the 13th day of Adar. See, these little victories, hanging Haman and getting this decree passed, and these are all just you know, great victories that you know, maybe should be celebrated to some degree. But listen, the, you're still in the battle. The enemy's still coming. And the Israelites would be required to stand and fight on that day. And that's what they did. Listen, it's in a similar yet spiritual fashion that we too have been called to fight the good fight of faith. And listen, I love rejoicing when I experience those, those victories over my daily battles. You know, every day I have those daily battles and, and, I, and I just, I, I love it, you know, when I, when I was like, yeah, I, you know, I didn't give into that sin. I didn't give into that, that daily desire of mine, you know, and I love that. I, I love celebrating those little victories. And yet we must remember that our victory today doesn't mean that there's no battle tomorrow. And, and how often, uh, you know, do we get into this mindset that, well, I've, I've been walking in victory for a month now. Problem solved. <laughs> no, more, no more temptations on this one. I, I've got this. Yeah, that's exactly when you stumble. Because you think you're no longer on the battlefield. Our victory today doesn't mean there's no battle tomorrow. And the chances are, if we walk in, in victory for, you know, in, in those areas that we struggle in, and we walk in, in that victory for a month or a year, or at some point in time, when you let your guard down, that's exactly when the enemy comes along and says, gotcha, <laughs> got him. Yeah. I encourage you to make sure that you're always ready for the fight. Because the spiritual attacks of the enemy will come when you're least expecting them. 
I like the way that Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 6. It's there where he declares, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Christian, listen, every day is a day that we need to stand. Every day is a day that we need to fight the good fight of faith. Therefore, every day is the day that we need to make sure that we are wearing the spiritual armor that God has given us. Now, if you want more details about each individual piece of armor, I did a whole in-depth study called Winning the War Against Wickedness. You can get it on our website for free. I encourage you to go check it out. Understand each piece of armor so that you can make sure that you are wearing the full armor of God. Because listen, as we take up the whole armor of God, the Lord helps us to stand against the schemes of Satan as he helps us to continue fighting the good fight of faith every day. And as we continue to fight the good fight of faith every day, we can rejoice in knowing that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith in Jesus Christ. As I consider the way that Mordecai was given the kingly robe and the crown and put on a horse and, and taken out, you know, and, and, and there was a big celebration, I, I'm looking forward to that day too. There's a day coming when we're going to you know, sit on horseback with our Savior and we're going to follow him from the marriage supper of the Lamb back to the planet where we're going to wipe out the enemies of Israel you know, after the battle of Armageddon. I'm looking forward to all of that. And, and while there's nothing wrong with rejoicing in the small victories that we experience today, let's remember we're still on the battlefield. We're still in the fight. And so let's fight the good fight of faith each and every day knowing that our faith in Jesus is what enables us to overcome this wicked world. Let's pray.